Welcome to this special episode. This episode came about due to my struggle and need um, to do something after another report of a tragic incident that was due to hatred and intolerance. There are too many stories of hate crimes due to racism, homophobia, xenophobia, Islamophobia, and anti-Semitism. I've asked my colleagues to join me for a conversation that I hope will be enlightening and helpful. In the words of Nelson Mandela, no one is born hating another person because of the color of his skin or his background or his religion. People learn to hate, and if they can learn to hate, they can be taught to love, for love comes more naturally to the human heart than its opposite. Welcome. You're listening to What is Black Podcast, a podcast where we have conversations about issues that impact parenting black children. I'm your host, Dr. Jacqueline Duget. So let's get started with the show. I want to introduce um, our panel for today. We have Dr. Julie Linton. She's a pediatrician um, in South Carolina. We have Dr. Jonathan Winkle. He's a pediatrician and internist or med-peds um, practicing in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Jehan Um And Dr. Sonia Khan practices in California in the San Francisco Bay Area. And Dr. Sinduri Kadali who also is a pediatrician practicing in the San Francisco area. Um, welcome, everyone, um, to the show today. Thank you. Thank you. So I think before, you know, in the introductions to the podcast, I wanted to sort of kind of hear some of, some of your reflex, reflections as pediatricians and as human beings, I guess, to the recent, um, the recent tragedies that have occurred um, in New Zealand, but also that's, we're like constantly hearing news reports and incidents of hate crimes and just just bigotry and discrimination. So I just wonder what what were your reactions when you heard this heard some of these recent news events? So Julie, would you like to go first? Um, sure, I can. Um, I think what is so devastating about what's been happening is the intersection of hate against so many communities that are not only being marginalized by these hate crimes, but are being pitted against one another. And so as someone who um, identifies as Jewish, who has been inspired by some of the solidarity. Yeah. So this, this is Jonathan. I, I have to agree with, with Julie. So I was actually in Tree of Life Synagogue the week before the shooting happened. Um, I actually left a uh, fairly uh, emotionally valuable item behind and got it back only several months later. Um, and, you know, I, I have to agree that the solidarity was really amazing. I work a lot with the Bhutanese refugee community in Pittsburgh and something like six days later, they held the Bhutanese community held a vigil in solidarity with the Jewish community. And I, I went to it and somebody commented to me afterwards, says, you know, I can guarantee you that, some of those people are so recently arrived that they didn't even understand what some of the speakers were saying, but felt they had to be there because their memory of Jewish is Jewish family and children's services that brought them to Pittsburgh and helped them get settled. And, you know, the, the Muslim community, the Islamic center of Pittsburgh reached out and donated enough money to cover all of the funeral expenses for the, um, for the, the victim's families. It was really an unbelievable kind of solidarity particularly because you had, you know, that attack was carried out by somebody who was angry about solidarity. And so we went back and we showed them that we were going to be even more solid. 
Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely add to that. This is Sonia. Um, I am a Muslim, and I grew up um, primarily almost completely in the West. I was actually born in England, but uh, immigrated over to North America, to Canada originally with my family in 1965. So I'm actually one of the oldest Muslims to grow up in the West um, in you know current generations. I came here as soon as I graduated from med school, so I've spent 30 years living in the U.S., um, and it took me 23 years to get my immigration, and I've seen my citizenship, rather. I've seen, since coming here, the transformation of the reaction of the host countries to the coming of the South Asian um, here and the, the first, you know, large populations of Muslims. Um, I can say it's been something, and, and I'm old enough to remember the shocking transformation after 9-11. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there's few things, actually, that kind of broke me um, more than watching when the travel ban came down. We're very commonly used to intersectionality encouraging the advocacy for our own people. But the most effective times are when we start advocating for each other. And I, I, took a, I took a lesson from that back when the Orlando shooting happened. And I kind of stood up. I live in a highly diverse community. We have one of the highest populations of Muslims here um, and South Asians because of uh, Silicon Valley. And I really took that opportunity when the Orlando shooting happened to stand up and actually uh, preach to my Muslim brothers and sisters about, yeah, you can come out and say that um, you don't support terrorism, but that's not the time to say but. You know, uh, 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 these are our differences or those are our differences. This is the time to come out and stand by people because what happens to them will happen to us. And uh, this this sort of lesson of uh, intersectionality going deeper even than um, we previously thought, it, it feels like a whole new lesson in how to, you know, united we stand, divided we fall. Um, so I think to just add to that, um, I think for me in working with different communities and kind of having been talking about hate crimes for over a decade now, I think I feel like what has been happening in the past couple of years to me really feels like what our worst nightmares were um, coming to fruition. Um, and so I think now when I see these things, there's this, incredible grief but also frustration that things are not getting better they're seem to be getting worse um and i think for me the the first time that one of these events really hit home was um after the oak creek shooting uh, because it was you know this i um i grew up in an immigrant family um and my family is Hindu, but we, it was a very large South Asian population. I had a lot of friends who were Sikh. Um, and so it, it just, it felt like I could see my, my family, my aunts and uncles being, being shot and killed while they were praying. Um, and it was just such an affront to, to feel like this one place that felt safe, um, where, you know, you could be yourself and practice your faith. Um, suddenly wasn't. And now I think, I mean, that was in 2012. Now, six years later, it feels like things are going in the wrong direction, which is really frustrating and hard to wrap my head around. Bye.
as an as an African American first generation woman. And I think part of the reason why I even wanted to do this podcast was not so much just to, well, it was to help um, parents who have black children, but I find that throughout the throughout all of our experience, human experiences, we we should be impacted by what's going on. We should be finding ways to work together, um, no matter what creed, color, religion, gender, orientation, right? To really stand up against this hatred that, like you said, is feels pervasive, um, and is and it really kind of. You know, I heard Sonia's um, emotionality. I mean, this this does cause emotion, right, to, to sort of rise up. So I'm yeah. just wondering, as providers, right, taking care of families and especially experiencing, you know, you're very much in the heart of the advocacy in the work that you will each do. How do you want kind of help help yourselves and your family sort of deal with these issues to then be able to then go and help your the families that you help every day? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, if that question is for me, um, I think the it's it, this is the time when we have to remember the, the rule about the oxygen mask for sure. Um, so, you know, the self care aspect. It, it, this is the this is the dilemma that has been actually for me since those days of the Muslim bans, and I'm a member of several listservs with our colleagues. Um, discussing these things, and the question kept coming out, how do we message safety to our vulnerable uh, populations after, mm-hmm. you know, these things have happened? And, and I found myself actually objecting to that and saying, I don't think the question is messaging safety. It's actually how do you make your patients safe? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, there is, it's not an imagined risk. It's an existential risk for some people. Mm-hmm. And at that point, messaging can only go so far, and at what point do we now start, um, you know, marshalling resources and, um, mm-hmm. and letting populations know, because the chilling effect is very real. Uh, we're seeing it, we're seeing in, in um, enrollments, we're seeing it in all kinds of things, and uh, we do play a role, I think, in making available to them what can they do and what are their rights and bystander interventions and all kinds of things like that. It may not be in our typical bailiwick as pediatricians, but I'd say maybe we have to think outside of the box uh, in terms of what we call messaging safety. Yeah. I mean, I I just remember we, we lost a colleague in the Tree of Life shooting, and I remember my boss saying to me at his funeral, and she's like, you know, you, you've been doing doing tragedy all week. You have to, you have to say, you can't keep living this. Like, the people that you take care of still need you. Um, which is crazy because some of the most, um, some of the neat people who are normally the neediest people I take care of were the ones that were rushing in to bring cards and cookies and, and you know, somebody at Hanukkah brought me a menorah because they felt like they, they just needed to give me something, um, posted it on my, on my blog because it was so moving. Um, you know, like we, we really had to regroup. We closed a couple of days to like let the staff recover and, and just, you know, an extra day before Christmas, an extra day before Thanksgiving to try to, to do self care. But I still don't, I still don't think we've recovered. Like we're all still in shock, but this, you know, I had two separate teenagers come in this week who came from the war in Syria and were like, it's following me. Like what the hell's going on? I can't get away from this. Yeah. 
Now, in your in your work to to help some of the to help the families that um, come, I'm trying to I'm, trying, I'm just trying to remember. I think it was um, I think Dr. Nia Hergaris. She had why well, I had heard the heard the term from her vicarious um, like either vicarious racism right or some or vicarious trauma right from the things that we watch and and we hear about right and then even personal experiences. I'm wondering how do you, how do you all help um, your your parents or children kind of or are you seeing that are you seeing the effects like this vicarious trauma as a result of all the news all the coverage and daily experiences that some families are having having to deal with. So so I actually think um kind of piggybacking off what Sonia mentioned this is Julie sorry um is I think it's a combination of actually not just making people safe because the reality is we don't live in a country where we have a rapid brave, credible, coordinated policy response to a trauma like they have had in New Zealand, where they have banned major assault weapons and are recalling them from the country. Um, so we can make, we can strive towards making people safe, but having been in the immigration policy advocacy space where I am primarily doing harm reduction rather than productive policy making, I I wish that I could move towards that quickly. And I know that on the day-to-day level, my work is messaging safety in part because my worn identity is that of a white person, which creates an unsafe space for many of the communities that I care for just because of all of what we're talking about. And so I believe it is my responsibility to actually take very intentional steps towards creating and messaging safety in my community and with the families I take care of that perhaps have to go above and beyond because of my worn identity as they should because of the privilege I've had from being somebody who's white. Um, this is Sundara. Um, I think, you know, um, one, of the, one of the things that has been helpful for me is um, I think relying on and turning to organizations that have been really helpful, like, and been working kind of at the grassroots level for a very long time in the community. Um, but when I encounter really difficult issues relating to, to hate or religious discrimination or xenophobia in practice with my patients, um, I, I find comfort and hope in, in turning to those organizations, um, like the Sikh Coalition or CARE, um, both have been really inspiring to me in, in just their leadership. Um, and I think, you know, Julie, like you were talking about, we don't have this, like, big national coordinated response, but um, we are lucky to have these incredible organizations that at least, you know, provide a really, really coordinated response. And I think the for me, the Sea Coalition has been a really um, great example of that in both the way that they do advocacy and like do things on many different levels. So, you know, when it comes to bullying, for example, in schools, they mm-hmm. actually are in classrooms. They teach children and parents how to 
talk to talk to people and then they have tools for administrators and then on the next level there's organizing at the, at the federal level to collect data and information and advocate for policy change so I think I think those that's some of what I turn to I think the other part is in terms of self-care for myself and my friends and my family some of it is just giving people a space to talk and then letting them know that it's okay to 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 turn it off, to put it away for a little while and and just focus on being present with whatever it is we're doing mm-hmm. in the moment. Now do you do you find in your work with your patients in their past, do you do you kind of do you let that do you share that with your pa- your patients if you the experiences that you have or do you do you kind of have to hold that close to the vest while you're engaging with, with patients? You know, I think um, I think it, it, it depends on what, what the patient's experience is. And, you know, if, if I feel like maybe there's a shared experience, then I, I definitely draw on that. But I think there are a lot of, a lot of experiences that I, I can't understand or imagine. And so I think in those cases, I either try to let them know that and be there or connect them with people who, who can. So I think there isn't really a substitute for that. Yeah, because I think that, I think what um, Sandera mentioned is kind of, I guess, I guess what I was trying to get at is, because it seems as though the role of the pediatrician, especially now, seems to be evolving, right? So it's the anticipatory guidance isn't just, you know, um, breastfeed, you know, um, wear a bicycle helmet, right? You got There are these other things that you have to add to it. So I'm just wondering, like, yeah. How is that now part of your your practice? Like you said, Cindy, I sort of recommend if if it may not be appropriate, and I and I and I agree to share you know personal experiences again because the per, you know the per, the person that you're dealing with has a different experience, right? We all have come with different experiences, but again, taking that into effect, how how has your role as a pediatrician changed, and how do you use that as an advantage for you in terms of really being able to more holistically help patients? Yeah, uh, this is Sonia. Uh, I'll just say that um, one of the, I actually did a couple of fellowships, and the other one was adolescent medicine. And I spent some time working in jails and homeless shelters and dealing with kids that had a lot of troubles in their lives. And I found that there were professional boundaries I had to draw about not sympathizing with them based on my own misspent youth, for example. But now, <laughs> now um, as uh, as a Muslim and facing this kind of thing, facing white supremacy in all of its assets as it, it, as it kind of, you know, expands and blossoms in, it, throughout the world, not just in the United States. Um, I have been asked, for example, to go and speak to a group of Muslim students at the high school tomorrow and sit down and, and, and really help them um, uh, try to deal from a trauma-informed resilience kind of way uh, going forward from here. And there's no way I'm not going to share experiences with them. You know, mm-hmm. they are very young. They've grown up in a big peer group of their own. Um, it, it may really help give them a longer perspective to learn what it was like to be Little House in the Big Woods, the first Muslim that anybody ever met for the first 20 years of my life. Um, so I will share things like that with them. That, that's been a bit of a transformation mm-hmm. for me to break down certain boundaries uh, if it helps these kids. Yeah. For me, it really depends on the space. So when I'm one-on-one with families, um, I rarely will share personal things unless I think 
the if unless the family specifically asks, or I am certain from some internal searching that I think it's for the patient and not for me. Um, but I will sometimes share things in a general way, such as many of the families I take care of, which may include people I know that their family doesn't know or things that are less personalizing in how I share them. But I do spend a lot of time talking about parental self-care with parents, much more so than I ever did, um, because the majority of the families that I take care of are children and immigrant families of a um, broad diversity of backgrounds. Um, and I also spend a lot of time, to Sonia's point with adolescents, talking about the impact of things on their own self-care, their own um, self-worth, as well as the fears that they have about the safety of themselves and their parents. Um, and I would extend that to violence against African Americans, and that's where this all kind of intersects together, because I have spoken with some of the, the people that have been mentioned here, and then I asked, you know, the black teens that I take care of, if you're stopped by a police car, how do you respond? And we talk about it. And typically that is a relief that comes through in the room when we have that conversation, because the reality is that's what's happening and what's going on at home. And I do find that it opens the door when they recognize that a pediatrician sees this as part of public health. Yeah. Hi. Oh, oh. I was, hi, Jihan. I've um, joined a little bit late. I was just going to comment. Um, I am an African-American um, Muslim woman um, who lives in Oklahoma, so um, very lots of obstacles, of course, in our way. But as a pediatrician, I often share stories with my family because that's actually how I build my rapport with them and oftentimes trust. And I find that in our community, just because the nature of, you know, we are, we're, you know, Midwestern, but technically it's, it is a Southern, that Southern feel people have to feel like you're a part of their family almost. And so, mm. of course, I have boundaries and things that I, you know, don't pass. But, but when you actually can ask a few questions and say, well, hey, I know someone who has experienced what you've experienced. Maybe I haven't, but I know someone who has. And I understand where you're coming from. And I know that you don't mean to do this. You know, um, sharing, you know, I, you know, feelings and things like that that you've had at times to say, well, well, my kid's this or my mm -hmm. sister this, things like that. And then they start to sometimes put another face with it. And I find that it often is beneficial. And because I am a triple minority, um, you know, a lot of times I, I, I do have to share those stories so that people realize, especially my patients, that, you know, it could be worse or to realize that I too ex experience hate um, and I have families who don't return when they realize that I'm Muslim, you know, or realize that I'm black. And so those are things that I experience, but that's not going to make me change, you know, how I interact with you or who I will invite to come to this practice. And I think that those are things that a lot of my patients love and respect about me and what has actually helped me to be successful in getting through to a lot of these families and teenagers. Yeah, this is Jonathan. I, I completely agree with with what Jihan said about it. I, and maybe I'm terrible at building boundaries, and that that could be a flaw. But um, I I think that getting that connection, you know, so much of what we do with building boundaries, there's there's enough boundaries in healthcare already that kind of take away and dehumanize the people, even the kids that we take care of, but especially my adult patients. And being able to have that exactly the kind of relationship we talked about of my kids also like, you know, we are in the same boat um, dealing with the same kind of troubles uh, I, I think really helps out. 
Um, and especially, you know, those, those two teenagers that I was talking about before that came in saw me this week when they said, I don't know how I'm going to handle this tragedy. Like this is reawakening all sorts of things for them. And all I could do was say me too. And like, we just, you know, sat there kind of half crying together, but that was what helped because they both thanked me as they left that, that somebody understood what they were going through. Um, so I, I, I agree with you on those connections are super important. So have you have you found tools that you now use or have had have had to develop to help your help your patients, parents and um and patients kind of deal with you know all the isms, right? And then just even to just to be kids nowadays, you have to be a kid plus all these other things on top of it. So like what so what what would you say to a family or what tools or re- references or resources do you do you recommend to families to to deal with some of these tough issues? If you can, I don't know. Yeah, right. I have uh, Sonia here. Uh, this is Sonia. Um, I have uh, we have a friend and colleague uh, by the name of Dr. David Schoenfeld, who is one of our developmental pediatricians and is the go-to guy in the United States for when there's been something massive like a, a school shooting or a tornado that's damaged a couple of schools or uh, that type of thing where there's been a surge crisis with a large number of children in one place. And the principles that he's been using to deal with them, this is the, the one that was on the ground at Sandy Hook and Aurora, Colorado, and so many of our tragedies throughout the country, trying to help both um, teachers and parents and community how to deal with uh, the trauma that the children are going through. So uh, on the uh, American Academy of Pediatrics website, there is a section on how to cope with loss, grief, disaster, when you lose a loved one, and and these things are known to apply also to vicarious trauma when they've been exposed to large amounts of very bad news. Um, so there's a lot of uh, materials there that he's been able to gather in one place with videos and, um, and resources, resource materials, and also some downloadable um, sort of protocol manuals that you can use for establishing those connections or teaching people like parents and teachers and community members how to establish those connections with kids in easy sort of simple steps um, that help to guide them how to develop these things when they don't have the benefit of the education and child development that we have, for example. So that's one set of resources I've found really helpful. Have, have any, anyone else any additional resources or you think those are, those are pretty good for like across the board? I think some of them have to be created, honestly. I think there's still work to be done in this area. Mm-hmm. Because I know in, in my training, you know, I may have dealt with it. I mean, I may have dealt with it less. I'm African-American, but I'm, I'm, some people might say I'm ambiguous, ambiguous looking in terms of like I could, I could pass for a lot of things. Um, but I know family members who have dealt with overt racism, um, sexism, right? So, but again, you don't learn about that in, in, in med school, residency. And I don't know if that's changing, if, if we're going to... We're going to have more tools coming up, but um, I don't know if there are any other resources or suggestions you all have for for families or you share with families. Um, I would also share that. Oh, sorry. I was going to just share that the um, the Gold Foundation, the Humanism in Medicine, every year they give the award at the AAP conference. I actually was awarded that in medical school and got to go to their conference. Mm -hmm. But the organization is wonderful. They actually focus on a lot of these things and how we bring the humanistic side back to medicine of approaching families and things like that. So it's more for 
you know, physicians of how we approach these matters. But, um, you know, they, they, they distribute a lot of their information out, but I know they're really trying to get more residency programs to adopt some of their practices and things and bring that humanistic side back to medicine. But I know my, my particular school did not have the full program. They just, you know, awarded someone who got to go. But I think that it will be great for more um, organizations to have that. I happen to have trained at a, at a minority, um, in a minority residency, which was smaller. So our attendings did make sure that we spent a lot of time on those things. Um, our program director was adolescent medicine, so we had to come face-to-face with a lot of issues that teens experience, especially LGBTQ things, um, you know, identity issues, religious issues, because, you know, bullying, all of those things, we were, we were kind of forced to because our PD, uh, that was our specialty, but she's no longer a PD, and so even the people after us didn't have the same um, aspect of what they learned. Right. And we've had, in, in our practice, we've had, you know, a girl who was, one of the things that I found is that rather than like the published resources, the resource that I always go back to is what's the family anchor? What's the family tradition that they've got that they can go back to? You know, I, I you know, to each, each his own particular bark on the, on the tree of faith, but whatever they, whatever they return to when they need some strength. Um, I've been really encouraging people to go back to that, you know, whether it's a hobby like photography or whether they're a religious Muslim family that goes to a mosque or, you know, a family that goes to a, to an evangelical church, whatever it is that gives them solace, um, encouraging them to get back into that, both for them and for the kids. Um, you know, especially if the kids see that as a safe place, like, like, um, uh, Sindora was talking about at the beginning that, that that was, that was her safe place. And I mean, a lot of our safe places have been violated. So getting them to, to feel that way about it again, you know, just think about the look on my kid's face the morning of the tree of life shooting and, and you know, wanting them to go back to our synagogue the next week and be able to feel comfortable there again. And, you know, four and four and a half months later, they do, but it's taken a lot. Yeah. I think for me, part of, part of the, the working with patients who are facing issues like this is just recognizing that, you know, part of my, my role as a pediatrician is to do also a little bit of the, the heavy lifting in partnership mm-hmm. with them um, because, you know, they're already trying to process whatever it is they're going through. And so that, that even the act of like reaching out to a resource or calling them is, is maybe an extra thing that they may not have the bandwidth to do. And so I try to try to help them with that. If, um, if I can and they want it. Um, I think I think the other thing that, you know, keeps coming up in my mind is that we see these kind of national these acts on a national scale and even kind of acts of overt racism are really I mean, if for me just the tip of the iceberg in terms of what what people are facing on a on a daily basis. And so, you know, if you kind of dig a little deeper you, you can see it in just the way that we practice medicine, the way that our, our policies are written, the way that we kind of do things, people face these things on a smaller scale every day, and those things are insidious. So I think part of what I try to do is help um, patients 
and advocate for them as they're kind of navigating those things on a daily. Sort of woven throughout this conversation that um, are, are really powerful. And I think some of the things that kind of to add on to warm handoffs and, um, and adding on to integrated services and adding on to above and beyond advocacy, um, which several of you have mentioned, I think um, presence in our communities that Sandora mentioned is really critical. Um, and we as pediatricians have an opportunity to step into the communities that we that we in our personal lives don't represent but are part of our community at large. And so I, I you know, having been to local, our local mosque and um, having supported medical students in research projects with the um, Kareni population and, and actually going to those um, ethnic communities has actually created a source of cultural pride reinforcement within those communities um, that I think we can really um, embody in our work and that allows us then when we come back into our office and see families in that space to have an, a different level of connectivity. And I think this again extends beyond immigration per se. For me, I'm a new member of my community in rural South Carolina or in South Carolina, which feels very rural to me coming from New Jersey. Um, and I was on a panel last evening um, in, on um, African-American health and, and uh, infant mortality disparities. And my expertise is in immigration, but we ended up having a really rich dialogue about the intersection between race and immigration status and the likelihood of deportation being much higher for undocumented immigrants who are black than undocumented immigrants who are brown. And I think it pointed out to me, again, the fact that there are our intentional political moves right now to pit communities against one another in a way that is violating and against the principles that we as pediatricians uh, try to espouse. And I'm not trying to simplify complex issues, but I am really striving to figure out how to rise above some of the um, intentionality going on at the local level, at the state level, and at the national level to think about how this kind of dialogue we're having here um, can really move move um, to a higher level so that we can see things like how New Zealand responded to this horrible tragedy coming out in policy in a way that allows families to feel as safe as possible amidst something unimaginable. Hi, yeah, well, Jihan. Oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, it's Jihan. I was just going to say that I think one of the biggest things, the biggest issues is that we never feel for the other group unless it's, and we don't feel for tragedy unless it's ours. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the biggest things that I see is that, and I recently just posted this, you know, because, you know, so many people were upset about what happened in New Zealand, which we should all be very upset about. But those same Muslim people, I said, are where we still upset about what happened at Pulse. Mm -hmm. Are we still up just as I said about what happens to the child on the South side of Chicago? Like, are we, are we not realizing that, you know, Stefan Clark's, you know, is the people who murdered him in his grandmother's backyard are not going to be prosecuted. Like if we can't just pick and choose what we are going to be passionate about, we have to care about everyone, no matter if they look like us, believe like us, 
think like us. We don't even have to agree with their lifestyle. But once we start to acknowledge that they are human beings and that we should feel uh, feel for them and care for them and respect them, then we our whole dynamic changes. So I think it's very important as pediatricians that we do that ourselves. Mm-hmm. I recently went to our capital to speak out against legislation. We all wore our white coats. I was the only African-American there and the only person wearing hijab. I don't know if there were other people. Most of the physicians mm-hmm. didn't even speak to me. Mm-hmm. And we're sitting there trying to fight legislation to help their cause. You know, it happened to not be my specialty. But I, was, I thought it was important to stand, you know, in solidarity with my physician colleagues when I realized mm-hmm. my physician colleagues don't even see me as their, their counterpart. They're equal. Mm-hmm. And I said, until mm-hmm. we can break those barriers, how can we break the barriers of our patients. And so it's very important that we start really looking internally to see, and then we can externally, you know, of course, get on all these boards. And like I said on the ACLU board, my husband sits on the care board. You know, we're, we're out doing these things. But I'm like, sitting on boards also doesn't get me anywhere. I have to actively be out in public encouraging people and making us just think differently and and. And it, it's so important that we start doing that because it's, it's, going to, it's hitting us harder. It's going to keep happening if we don't start paying attention. I'll segue on that. This is Sonia. And I know this is a little bit of a cheat because this is not necessarily a traditional pediatrician response, but uh, I joined the Human Relations Commission of my city in 2006, or 2016, and I just happened to be the only Muslim in city government um, when the, the 2016 election took place, and suddenly I found that fallen into my lap was the both, I think, honor and burden, really, of authoring the sanctuary city resolution for my city, for a city of a quarter of a million people. And, uh, you know, I will never know <laughs> if it helped anybody. I don't know if we staved off ice for any of our, our members of our town. I need to know I just the satisfaction I got of being able to write a comprehensive document that, um, that brought together all of our vulnerable communities and our city's declaration to shelter them from an abuse of power at the federal level was probably one of the most satisfactory things I think I've ever done in my life. Yeah, we had we had a discussion about what um, John was talking about and about standing up for for others, um, you know, because so many people reached out from all around the world and of every kind to the Pittsburgh community. I mean, to my office, to my synagogue, to the to the whole community, um, and saying at some point about a week later, like the next time something terrible happens. We had better. We we need to think about it differently. We need to return the favor. Like a lot of us didn't remember doing what people were doing for us when there had been tragedies in previous places. And uh, and tragically, there was a there was a member of my son's high school class that was um, shot and killed in a you know just a a ridiculous way about a mile from my house, uh, probably a month later. And I remember on the on the the TV coverage of the service that was held in his memory. Um, seeing a lot of people that I, you know, that are my friends and neighbors who had been similarly affected by, by the shooting in my neighborhood that went because they felt like this, this was the opportunity to show that we were, that we were, we were there for him and that we were reaching out, um, you know, and, and now reaching back to the Islamic Center of Pittsburgh saying, hey, now, now you've suffered a tragedy. What are we going to do? So um, it's, it's hard to be 
all of those things for all, for all of the tragedies that are happening they seem to just not stop but I think you're absolutely right like remembering to be as broken up when it's somebody else's community as it was when it was your own um, yeah. is really the change and, and you know, I think it, I think it's a good change that's happened here at least since since October um, yeah. you know talk about positive positive tools remember you know everyone is as human and as fragile as you were in that moment yeah, Jonathan, I'll just say, by the way, because I have a friend and colleague who is in your congregation, um, and I'll just tell you, um, it was another one of those moments when I realized what the Tree of Life Synagogue was doing for the New Zealand victims. And so uh, you can transmit my thanks to your, your congregation. Sure. I, 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 I will. I'm actually not a member of Tree of Life, but I, I, I probably know who you're talking about, so you can give okay. me the name. Okay, you know who I'm talking about, yeah. Mm-hmm. Before, before we wrap up, I definitely want to, again, um, thank you, and I am so grateful that you all um, agreed to speak with me and to share your experiences and to share um, lessons learned. I think that will, I think will help, help families um, that are dealing with similar situations, or hopefully they'll, if, even if not, they'll, again, they'll maybe see... Um, you know, see it, see it differently, especially if they have a neighbor or friend. Um, before we go, what are, what are your thoughts? What are, what are your hopes for, for what, we, what we can do, I guess, collectively as pediatricians or individually to, again, to sort of help, help heal, help heal ourselves, help, he, help, help heal each other? And I think this collective, diverse group of um, gracious individuals like yourselves um, is showing a way for a lot of people. So, I mean, if you if you have any thoughts about that, no no pressure. But again, just wanted to thank you. And before we headed out, if there were if there were any last words that you all wanted to wanted to say or share, I'll just say thank you for doing this. Um, it was really important to me uh, on our own listserv to feel heard, and I really appreciate that you reached out to do this because it's been therapeutic for me. So thank yeah, you. I, I I agree with Sonia. Thank you, Jackie. Welcome. Yeah, I, I want to echo my thanks, and I think my what is coming up for me and is my like takeaway is something that I I learned early in my career, um, which was the value of coalition building and like really the the power of numbers. And I think you know people get frustrated when you're talking about really diverse groups and they're all sort of lumped together because every, I mean, we have differences and that's, that's important to celebrate, but I think really making sure that we, we understand and we know that there is power in our solidarity and our numbers. Um, and I think that's probably the best hope for the future. I, um, I recently was in a, community um, event and somebody shared that um, our world really needs to change and our country needs to change from a message, messaging of scarcity to messaging of abundance. And it's something that I think resonates across a number of, of faiths and a number of communities. And I think the other thing that I try and hold on to is we need to transition from um, our communities being the communities from which we come to our community being the community we envision for the future. And so um, this conversation, I think, has been really therapeutic um, for me as a um, 
individually as well as um, collectively. And so thank you, Jackie. And thank you to all of the, um, our, my new colleagues and new friends. Mm -hmm. Thank you. All right, everyone, have a great evening and great weekend. Thank you. Thank, you. Bye -bye. Thank you. Thank you for listening to What is Black podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. Until next time.